What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Got a super special episode for you today. So, Brandon Quidham is an author. He's been publishing uh, on Medium articles that relate uh, the mycelial structure of the fungi kingdom to Bitcoin. And he's done that in four parts. Part one was called Bitcoin is a decentralized organism, mycelium. Part two is Bitcoin is a social creature, the mushroom. Part three, Bitcoin is the antivirus to macro uncertainty, medicine. And part four, Bitcoin is a catalyst for human evolution, symbiosis. And that article, part four, dropped this week. And so my reflexive action was to get in touch with Brandon. I'd recorded a podcast with him back in... I think September of, or October of last year, and uh, love his work. Um, you know, I'm very interested in uh, mycelium and mushrooms, and I've talked about my um, kind of the importance I place and my my curiosity around uh, psychedelic mushrooms. But it it extends into uh, the medical round, and just as a field of uh, study, I find it incredibly fascinating. And uh, spoke to him in September, October, had a really nice chat, and of course was highly anticipating part four, as I'm sure uh, many of you were. And so after it dropped, I got in touch with him to uh, record a pod. He said that Brady from the Citizen Bitcoin podcast, which is one of my absolute favorites, if you have not yet checked it out, definitely uh, find it on your podcast app and have a listen. It's absolutely one of the best in the space. Uh, He had said that Brady, the host, had slid into his DMs just before and got dibs on the first episode. So I said for the first interview. So I was like, yeah, that's totally fine with me. I just want to chat. And then uh, Brady got in, the three of us got in touch and we thought, why don't we do uh why don't we put it all to, why don't we do it together? Um so why don't the three of us hop on a call and uh, see what happens. So that's what we did. Um I guess it was kind of as we all expected. It got cosmic very very quickly. So I think we spent maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes discussing uh, Brandon's article. And then for the next two hours, it's about two hours and 45 minutes long in total, we just went wherever we felt like going and tied it back to Bitcoin and Brandon's article intermittently throughout. But just basically three buddies getting on a call, talking about Bitcoin and other uh, other cosmic stuff. Uh, we decided it might be fun to experiment. So Brady published part one on his podcast. Uh, so that's about the first hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes. So if you haven't yet listened to that, it's essential that you listen to that first. So head on over to Citizen Bitcoin, download it and listen, because what this is, is part two of our conversation. So um, yeah, just uh, not the typical uh, episode, but it's always fun to experiment, especially with such uh, awesome guys. So uh, that's it. I hope uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Dude, it's astonishing how much content and informational, educational resources that this system, this protocol has conjured up um, without direct compensation. I mean, your website's example, our podcast, many podcasts are an example. A lot of people that write books, you know, they don't really make a ton of money off them, right? Your articles, like this thing has inspired such, you know, such a response in people that they're willing to commit their time and energy resources and the opportunity cost of financial resources to, to educating people or to exploring even, maybe not even for the sense of education, but for just exploring the different angles and analogies and implications of this thing. I mean, it always blows my mind. And of course, the last year has 
even more so because it seems to be accelerating at a, at a, at quite a rip. But, um, yeah, that was just, I had how no does, point. But. How do, now, how does that play out though? Like Bitcoin inspires this dedication in people and kind of going back to Brandon's idea of the sort of like nucleus of the cryptographers and, and a few libertarians and kind of expanding out into a more normal crowd, the more nor- like normies coming into Bitcoin as we call it. Uh, every generation, more and more people are inspired to dedicate at least some part of their lives. Uh, you know, even if they don't become completely consumed, like, like a lot of us, at least some part of their lives to talking about Bitcoin, educating about Bitcoin, uh, learning more about it. And what does that, I mean, how does that play out? I was talking today uh, on Swan Signal with Ansel and uh, Andy Edstrom, Ansel Linder and Andy Edstrom. And we were talking about this, um, you know, how, like, I felt a lot more bullish than, than both of those guys. They were both being very, like, reasonable about how this all plays out. Like, it's, Bitcoin's just too small. There's way too much education to do. I sort of feel like, uh, well, just, just to give you guys uh, like, sort of the baseline, the, the timeline that we were talking about was, like, five years, right? We were looking at five years. So Ansel was talking about how, like, in, this system's collapsing in about five years, um, one way or another, and we're going to be looking for a new financial system, right? Um, obviously a lot of us think that's going to be Bitcoin, but Ansel thinks that Bitcoin will not be big enough. Even if it's, you know, a $10 trillion market cap by then, not big enough to, you know, be the financial rails for the, you know, global monetary system. Um, and he thinks that, you know, there's just too much education to be done. People just, you know, they don't, they're just going to do whatever they're told to do and they're not going to care to educate themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But this dedication that Bitcoin inspires, this something that's there this you know undescribable indescribable sort of uh soul i guess that bitcoin has that inspires us and gets into our souls like i feel like that will you know just continue in these concentric kind of circles as brandon puts them like out and then you have people like you have um you know you're documenting on your project who are very influential dedicating their time right and then that, that just snowballs, right? I mean, you can imagine like an entire like cable channel dedicated to Bitcoin, right? And just talking about Bitcoin, what it is. All the CNBC people are like, yes, Bitcoin is the way to go. Bitcoin's going to save us. Like, you need to learn about it. Here's what, you're, you know, here's what we're going to teach you. Go, you know, go listen to John Vallis. You know, he's going to tell you exactly what's going on. Like, but then it's going to be everybody too. It's like going to be, you know, politicians, celebrities, of all kinds, you know, sports figures, um, you know, just influencers on Instagram, Kim Kardashian, whoever it's, I, I, I can just see this snowballing so quickly. Right. And, and that's what we, the idea of hyper Bitcoinization is right. And it, it's going to be part of that is going to be the influence, you know, and this, this dedication that Bitcoin inspires. Uh, and it's just gonna, it's a network effect in itself. I'm so on board with that one. The first thing that comes to mind is, um, why, like the question of why does it inspire so much dedication? And I think everyone on this phone call very much feel this. Like it's like discovering something that you didn't know you needed. And it, I don't, I don't know exactly where or why, but things that sort of feel real to me is it, the whole world sort of felt like there was a facade. Um, like the, the news is fake. The politicians are fake. The food's fake. The fucking media is fake. Everything's fake. What am I even doing here? And then you come across Bitcoin and you go, oh, this, this feels fundamentally true. This feels fundamentally right. This makes 
this gives a frame to put lots of other things in my life into context, in a context that I support that makes me optimistic. You know, pre-Bitcoin, I was more like gloomy about the future of, of our species. Um, if you just follow the trend line of all our institutions, culture, et cetera, it just looked like it was going off a cliff. And all of a sudden, Bitcoin comes in, and I go, wow, I can put all my political energy into this thing. And I wake up every day excited to do it. I feel optimistic to do it. And I find a band of brothers who are more like me than some of my closest friends that I've known my whole life. And many of them I've never even met. Like, <laughs> yeah. what? That's madness. It is. It's madness. Yeah. I know. And like, okay, it's really easy to find energy to work for Bitcoin. Like other things, I'll drag my feet and just not do it and just not do it. With Bitcoin, I'll work all day long and it doesn't feel like work. And so I think that's going to have a tremendous effect. Yeah. Um, but I, I think long term, though, I don't think that everyone's going to have to go through that process. No. Right? I, think, I think some of us were starving intellectually. I think, we, I think everyone in, into Bitcoin at the level that we are, we were primed for Bitcoin. I've always been freedom-loving, um, libertarian-leaning, even though I didn't wear that on my sleeve. Like, it, it makes sense for my constitution to adopt Bitcoin. But I think what we're going to find is that people will just mimetically adopt Bitcoin because their friends do. And they'll, yeah. they don't want to miss out. And then they'll just, it's just money now. And they have a bid and, you know, yeah. they don't and have to learn it, right? Their favorite influencer, their favorite celebrity. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's my point. Like right now, it's sort of spreading slowly organically through this sort of like uh, um, the Kevin Bacon, you know, the six degrees kind of principle, right? Like, you know, we each onboard five or six other people, you know, kind of slowly but surely. But when, we start onboarding and like that sort of inspiration hits, you know, just a few, you know, less than one, you know, 0.1% of all the massive influencers out there. That's when it just really snowballs, right? Cause they're onboarding thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that they're inspiring with their, you know, megaphones. And we haven't really seen that much yet. Like we started to see that just a little bit, you know? Um, but I, I think that that's just going to really ramp things up. Uh, and then that on top of like just the truth of what's happening around us with, with the money. Um, bam, I mean, you put those two things together. And it's like you said, I don't, people don't need to be maniacs like us, you know, they're just, it's just going to happen at some point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you both. I mean, I think the incentives and what is delivered by engaging in this as money and all the other things that it is and will become will be absolutely sufficient to draw in the vast majority of, you know, society. I don't think people are going to need to be able to appreciate the history of money and, and that the fact that Bitcoin is such a substantial upgrade and what it represents and be able to see into the future in the way that we sometimes you know, imagine or articulate. I think it'll just be better at the, need that, the, the needs that they require. You know, if money is that fundamental organizing mechanism for human exchange and interaction, economic exchange and interaction, then the benefits of using an upgraded one will be apparent and they'll, they'll, they'll use it for those reasons. You know, I know a lot of people in my life that they're just never going to care about the political implications or, uh, you know, the fact that it's the next iteration of money and all the different things that that means and will be possible because of it. they'll just be drawn to it as they're drawn to everything else because it makes their life easier or better or more prosperous or whatever. So, you know, maybe, when we always kind of rail about all these things like the history of money and 
how everything works. I mean, I don't think we're under any illusions. We know that doesn't land on a lot of people, but you know, and I think, I think people will start to maybe question money a bit more and some of this stuff will seep through, but ultimately it'll be because it's just better. And one of the things that I, I found fascinating, you know, Brady, we talked about this on the Swan call back after Bloody Thursday. I think it was Bloody <laughs> Thursday, right? It was, yeah. um, and we, we all, or many of us said, it was certainly my experience, that two things happen. A couple of my friends, you know, got in touch with me saying, how do I buy Bitcoin? And that was extremely shocking to me because usually the last time that happened was December 2017. And that kind of makes sense because the price was pumping and people thought they could make a ton of money. This time it, lo- it tanked like 40, 50%. And people were calling me like, how can I get a piece of this thing? And you're like, why, why, would, why, why do you want it now? It just, it just shit the bed. But the other half pe- uh, portion of people kind of hit me up and they were like, ha ha, how's your, you know, your store of value, your hedge against the, the system now? And at, <laughs> the time, I, I, at the time, I was just like, dude, nobody's saying it's going to replace the system right now. It's a, it's a drop in the bucket of a ma- massive global financial system. Turbulence in one is going to affect it. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and nobody, nobody's saying it's ready for a prime time at this very moment. But then, you know, on reflection of that, I thought, hmm, somehow for those people who are not interested at all, they were imbued with the notion that Bitcoin is at least supposed to be a hedge. Now, they were chirping me out because they were saying that it wasn't acting that way. But what kind of was interesting to me is how did they get that? Like, where did they get that from? Because that's kind of, that was kind of a novel thing. People, it's not like they were talking to me before, you know, about how Bitcoin could be a new financial system and a hedge against the existing one. And so, you know, these messages are, and ultimately I think that's a positive thing because now that it's bounced back and if it continues to strengthen over time, then that narrative that they, they somehow got and then first thought was wrong, and that's why they chirped me out they'll start to see that maybe it was correct. And I think that will cause, you know, th- that will be attractive to them. That will cause them to rethink their position on it. Yeah, it's, the new, it's a new narrative, right? That's kind of emerging is this hedge against the system narrative. And it seems to be getting out there. I love that piece by uh, Nick Carter. Uh, I think maybe he did it along with Hasu where they uh, mapped Bitcoin narratives over time. Right. And uh, yeah, and like store of value is kind of a, a dominant one now. Um, and yeah, this, this sort of hedge against fiat is sort of seeping into the, the, the cultural consciousness. Uh, and I think it's kind of maybe a, a, obviously at this point, um, a very applicable uh, and timely narrative that I could see really uh, blossoming over the next couple of years. Yeah, and even those among us who are like the least tuned into what's going on, and again, there's many in my life, but even them, they're like, something is does not seem right. Like this is, you know, all this money. They hear the word trillion, and they're like, how is, this, like, how is that possible? Like, how this is, something's weird. You know, they might not care to follow it up too much or whatever, but like that le- has landed. And previously, I didn't notice that. So that's step one, and then step two is maybe realizing the implications of that. And then step three is, well, what are ways I can mitigate, you know, the downside? And yep. so we'll see. It's, it's, it's an ongoing process. It, one, one of the questions actually that I, that I want to have for Brandon is, you know, Bitcoin is, has to be a means, right? Not an ends. 
So I know this is kind of like a macro hard, maybe potentially hard to answer question, but I, like just per, on a personal level, you know, what do you see kind of in your future? Um, aside from, you know, rah-rahing and contributing, uh, you know, to the narrative of, of Bitcoin and trying to foster its success, you know, what, what do you, what kind of a life do you want to have in that future world? Yeah, like let, let's take it as if Bitcoin has succeeded or my role is is not needed, kind of that angle. Yeah, we'd still love to have your input, but yeah, not 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 necessarily for cheerleading or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I'll lose intellectual curiosity with Bitcoin anytime soon, but I don't think I'll be one hundred percent involved like I feel like I am now, eventually. Right, like get Bitcoin out the door. Once it becomes boring, once all the normies flood in, I'll go find some other weird thing to, to <laughs> capture my attention with. However, when I think about like how does Bitcoin fit into my long-term game, um, I, I think I actually excel this combined with the virus, combined with just getting older and probably starting a family soon. Um, I'm a bit more interested in building not a citadel in like this, um, you know guns defend the castle type romanticized violent thing haves and have nots with like crocodiles um, in the moat more like a go get a ranch somewhere between the sierra nevadas and the rockies where i can grow food and buy like a hundred acres and break that into 10 pieces you know buy at scale and then now 10 10 buddies or families that we have similar values and that's sort of our primary residence and Bitcoin is the tool that, um, you know, ideally will appreciate, but even if it doesn't appreciate much more, it's at least freedom money. If America goes to shit, which I don't foresee, if if it does, I think it's probably the last to do that. Um, But I can leave, right? So to me, it gives me the freedom to go pursue life on my own terms, which is really the the number one thread that's uh, run through all the decisions I make in my life, whether I'm conscious of it or not. That's number one. And so to me, Bitcoin's freedom, it, it, it preserves the ability to do what I want. And I'm very concerned with encroaching on liberties and just sort of the, the path that the whole globe is seeming to take. And I understand why people are, are asking for those things. The average person is scared. They're confused. And so they want the guy with the big stick to keep them safe, right? That's just latent programming from our hunter-gatherer days. And so it's completely natural to me. But I don't want to be collateral damage in a system where we're begging for the guy with the big stick or the nanny state to come in. And so, yeah, I want to stack sets and um, sort of keep one foot in the matrix to, you know, because I, I do want to pulse on the culture, but not necessarily concern myself with the, the sides of culture that I don't agree with and sort of participate when I want to and get the fuck out otherwise. What, what kind of things uh, do you think, what kind of weird things do you foresee you might be getting into? Like, I mean, there's, there's so many awesome, wonderful things that could be on the horizon for us that are on the horizon. Space, um, you know, psycho, like micro dosing with uh, massive, like spreading of micro dosing, um, merging with man <laughs> and machine. Uh, like, I don't know. Are you into art? Like what, what would you, what would you go into next? Do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've never been a go into one thing kind of guy. I always have five projects going. Like I've got a mini greenhouse in the basement. I'm growing food. I'm going to go trout fishing this weekend. Um, Probably do some writing as well. And so I'm always going to be diverse, but 
I, th I think VR will probably be the next uh, most exciting thing. And I think the, the virus situation is going to accelerate that. We're going to be seeking social engagement. And I think that will probably be uh, the next big wave. I'm interested in it. I don't know how I would fit into the ecosystem, but it's fascinating to me. You and see. so I could see that. Um, I also fantasize about colonizing Mars. I'm big into sci-fi, like probably most Bitcoiners are. And so I, I think that that's a really interesting, hard problem for humanity. Um, I know it gets tangled up in politics, like save our Earth versus go get a new one, whatever. Um, Mars is hostile. We're not even anywhere near prepared for it. But interestingly, mycology has a role here. Uh, yeah, probably I was just going to say. Role. If we want to terraform Mars, we can do it with technology, probably not. Um, or we could do it by genetically modifying uh, extremophile fungi on our planet, the fungi that live in the most hostile conditions here. Um, those fungi are almost adapted to surviving on Mars, not quite. And so we could tweak them and send like seed Mars with little um, self-sustaining little fungi dominated ecosystems and try to start terraforming uh, the planet there. We can also use fungi to grow food in space. You can bring spores, which are lighter than air. Um, the size of a, a Skittle would be enough food for an infinite amount of time. And so, yeah, like fungi have a role there. And so I'm certainly no mycologist. I'm an amateur. I'm a hack compared to the real pros. I'm just an, a guy who's excited about it. And I think I can bridge the gap and, and stimulate the imaginations of normal people. And so, you know, that roundabout way, it's probably going to come back to fungi, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's the medicine, it's the food. We're making materials out of fungi. You can grow fungi to be solar panels. Um, you can make packaging. Wait, wait, wait. You can fungi. grow fungi to be solar panels? Yeah. There, I don't know the exact process, but there are people working on that now. Um, wow. Yeah, you sort of just train them to do whatever you want. And so theoretically, there could be a biological system instead of the, the panels we use now that accept energy. Um, people theorize about connecting, uh, sending digital signals through mycelium. So you could theoretically send a Bitcoin transaction underground through a mycelial network. I've heard you say this and I wasn't sure if you were like exaggerating or, or something. But yeah, that's, that's I mean, interesting. It's, we're nowhere near that, but <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. theoretical possible and terence sure. mckenna actually i think in the 80s was hypothesizing about this and i don't i don't know where the the process is now but i think fungi is just criminally understudied and it, it's applicable everywhere and so yeah. i think that's going to be important everything you're saying it just makes me so excited for the potential future and if we can just get to a place where there is dramatically less misallocation of resources and waste and friction in the system and, you know, blockages up and signposts and siloing and all that kind of, if we could just get rid of all of that, man, like there is so much possibility to unlock. And, uh, yeah, man, when I, when I hear people like you just type just one little domain, you know, what, like, of course it's very important and there's, it's going to, branch off and impact many different things but just one the domain of mycelium and mushrooms and like where the study could go and what applications it could have in our life and for our world and for other worlds it's like man we we need to get to a place where we can unlock 
as much of our potential as possible. And that's what this is all about. I mean, that's what ultimately money is. It's the tool with, that we use to manifest our imaginations, to extract novelty from the universe. And we, we, are, we are limited by the forms we've used in the past and the form that we currently use. And the one we're dancing around now, the fire that the apes are dancing around, the, the, you know, Bitcoin, it's not perfect, and I'm sure its deficiencies will further down the line uh, become apparent. But man, it's going to allow um, some some novelty. And uh, I just I you know I sometimes wonder like Bitcoin's going to impose its it's it's going to assert its economic truth anyways. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, what am I doing here? Like, am I trying to accelerate it for my selfish gain or? for whatever reason, but I think it's just out of enthusiasm. I'm like, I want to see that fucking world. So let's go. Like, I know Bitcoin, you're going to do it in a hundred years. Let's do it in 50 or let's yeah. do it in 20. Like, you know, I just, I don't want to wait. Yeah. Or I mean, or it's just out of intellectual boredom. Like Brandon was saying, like, I, <laughs> yeah, I sure. mean, I didn't realize I was so intellectually bored until Bitcoin came along. You know, there, it, it had been a while since, uh, since I had had something, a real, new challenge uh on the intellectual front um you know and i just god it's it's um it's like a it's like that pill in limitless you know it's just like uh, 100 you know, but you yeah. know you, you know one of the and i think uh i think both of you might have touched on this earlier but or i think it was brandon talking about like prior to bitcoin and kind of your your outlook on the world and i think many of us in the in that interact with bitcoin are probably in a similar situation we saw all this crazy dark shit on the horizon we were like well how you know how could that shit get solved and then we found bitcoin and it was a ray of light and we pursued it and here we are but you know imagine how many people i'm you know i'm amped up on enthusiasm and talking about po possibility imagine how many people in the world uh, and brady as you were just saying you didn't have that kind of like intellectual stimulation uh, you had lost it for a while imagine how many people in the world are not enthusiasm or uh, enthusiastic or excited or hopeful about what's to come uh, and what, you know, how that becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and how many people walk around with that weight and that, that malaise and that darkness on them and in them. Um, and how on the flip side, how much different it will be when they do have something to strive for, to hope for, to work towards, yes. to be excited about. It's, yes. you know, it's, it's clear very exciting. What I would say it's clear when you see someone who's passionate. Um, John, you always talk about being excited or um, enthusiastic. That's infectious. You know, mm. it's programmed in us to uh, trust or, or, or want to follow someone who, who appears to have it figured out, right? And so that enthusiasm, I think, is really important, not only for um, spreading Bitcoin, but also for just being fulfilled in your life. I think in terms of education, which is another passion of mine, um, I don't like the system. I don't think anyone on this call likes the system or many of the people listening. And my model with, with learning, I had the conversation with my wife a couple weeks ago and she's saying, you know, I want to learn this thing. And she was frustrated. Um, so, you know, she couldn't find the motivation to f like finish an online course essentially. And I was saying, don't finish it, skip it. If you're not super excited about it, put it down. If you're reading a book halfway and you don't, you're not, Liking it, you just dragging your feet, put it down. There's an infinite, infinite amount of books and humans don't learn things if they're not excited about it. You might power through the book, but you forget it along the way. Instead, follow your nose. 
whatever you're excited about. If you're excited about ant colonies, read a hundred books on that. You know, it doesn't matter what it is, but then you'll actually learn and you actually build an intellectual foundation, which you can then reference. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you're just trying to get a MBA paper to put it on your LinkedIn and brag about it at shitty cocktail parties. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. That's some truth right there, man. <laughs> no offense to the MBAs or maybe just slight offense. Um, also thinking about like a future where let, let's say Bitcoin's wildly successful and there is a wealth transfer from old money to, you know, whatever Bitcoin money. And you sort of start to profile the people who have power and influence today and juxtapose that against the people who have uh, power, let's say, Bitcoiners. And I don't know about you guys. Well, I do know about you guys. I take that. <laughs> um, if we look at the old world, you know, it, it's, it's essentially derivatives of like the Rockefellers and banking. And, you know, then you might, might have had like the bond trader, iBanker 80s, people who sort of siphoned all the wealth and all the... The, the whole game's incentivized to get close to the to politics and to buy the politicians. And so the system, I don't blame these people. They're playing by the rules. Um, the people who gain power now gained it in a, in a way that's um, not as ideal to future growth for our society. Mm -hmm. And when I look at Bitcoiners, you start to say, okay, what's a Bitcoiner? Okay, they're curious. They have a little rebel spirit. They're not afraid to go against the herd. So you could call them a leader extremely intelligent, self-starter, self autodidact, the list goes on. Um, that's the type of people who I want to have capital. Like what's the opportunity cost here where the, the influence in the capital is in the hands of, of cronyism or uh, short-termism or whatever we want to call it, what the, what's rewarded in the system versus long-term thinking, um, real economic growth, real ideas. Um, that's exciting to me. Couldn't yeah, agree man. more. All right. If there's a little lull, I wanted to come back to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you mentioned that you're excited about VR, Brandon. And um, I'm definitely excited about it too. I have been since I was a kid. You know, uh, the, the idea of VR has been around for a long time. The promise has been, you know, there for decades. Um, I feel like it's finally sort of coming to fruition. Uh, so I, I bought a PSVR a couple of years ago. Um, and I was like, I felt like I was, <laughs> John, I felt like that, that picture of you opening up the the Super <laughs> Nintendo that you posted on Twitter, which yeah. I fucking love, by the way. So you so were extremely this, excited. Yeah, there's an amazing picture of John opening Super Nintendo when he was a kid. And it's just like, I mean, it's meme worthy. How, how much he was freaking out. Um, but yeah, I was like, I felt like that. I felt like, you know, back in the day when I first turned on my Nintendo and was playing some Mario brothers and I put on that, that VR headset for PlayStation and I, I played this game called Moss, uh, absolutely immersive and beautiful and, um, creative. Um, and then I had, there's playing this little game now that's like these little, it's called Astrobot uh, adventures or something like that. It's kind of like the Mario version of, of, on PlayStation VR. And, you know, I'm playing with my kids and my wife and we're all just having a great time. We take turns with the headset and you watch whatever somebody's doing on the, on the screen. I got an Oculus recently and attended um, one of Udi's meetups and I got interviewed at a virtual a VR meetup called Crypto Mondays, uh, which was weird. I mean, it was like on stage in VR. Um, 
you know, and answering questions, taking questions. It's a different experience. Um, it's like, it then just, you know, you would think like, you know, why don't you just zoom or why don't you, whatever, Skype or something, right? What, what is, what's the big deal? Um, but it's a different experience when you're in VR and you're like, have this sort of, uh, the space around you and you can sort of walk into a corner and have a conversation and, uh, you know, move about the space. It's, it's, it's definitely different. It's better for a large group of people for sure. So have you, I mean, what have you, what's been your experience with it, Brandon? And like, what intrigued you about it? Yeah. So coming from the sci-fi angle, again, been following VR and hoping for a very long time. Um, you know, Ready Player One, Snow Crash, those type of things are really inspiring. Um, but I honestly have very little experience using it. I set up a, maybe six months ago, I, I rented a couple bays at a VR arcade here in Minneapolis. And I just run with some buddies, you bring your own beer, you know, just play all the games, they have it all set up for you. And where it really hit me is we're playing co-op. I don't remember the game, but some zombie game where you're like defending the house against waves of zombies that get better. And, you know, you, you upgrade your guns and defend your position, essentially. Super fun. But it felt like you're, like you're just mentioning, Brady, so much more real than just staring at a screen, you know, split screen or on the internet yeah. or whatever. You can hear their voice and it's there. You turn, it's there. It's, it's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're getting yeah. attacked from behind and you freak out and you're swearing yeah. and you're running around, you're sweating. And so there is this element of, of immersiveness that is real. And yep. the next point that really stuck out is there's this game, I forget what it's called, where you essentially take an elevator to the top of this building and you walk a plank. So think like in the Matrix when they're like, Neo, jump. You know, No one makes yeah. it on the first jump. Yeah. It's kind of like that, a short simulation. And you can watch videos on YouTube of this where – People walk out on this plank and they look down, you know, to their impending death and they freak out. People get on their hands and their knees and start crying. It, and you know it's not real. You just put the headset on. And so what it plays with is, um, which is another fascinating point, the play between your mind, your, your head and your body, your mind and your body. And our culture lives very much in our heads. And I'm very guilty of this. And we sort of neglect our body. But when you go into VR, your body says, holy shit, I'm about to die. And it sends off an alarm, even though your head's like, no, dummy, you just put on the headset. But in that fight, a lot of times the body wins. And so I think that's a, just a fascinating thing about VR. Like that's a good sign that we're at that point where you can trick your body. Um, and then it also opens like another squirrely little rabbit hole um, playing with the idea of like how smart our body is. You know, we give our mind credit, but most of our serotonin comes from our gut. You know, our physiological responses actually drive our behavior. If you're feeling sad, you can fake, you can just make a smile and you <laughs> actually become happier. And, you know, there's endless examples like that. And so, again, back to our, our hubris as a species and the, the complex systems around the world that we think we can understand, but we just fundamentally can't. Yeah. Yeah. I've been wondering about the, the Oculus too. And uh, Brady, you'll have to tell me if it's a, it's worthwhile to pick one up, but yes, you know, <laughs> okay. Noted. But, uh, but yeah, Brandon, I, I, when you're saying that, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about with VR and I've, you know, I've always been very interested in the power of belief, 
you know, of, of true belief. And there's an area of, of medicine that deals with this, as you, you know, it's formally called psychophysiology. There's other names for it as well. But, you know, and everyone's familiar with the placebo effect, right? And so what's happening there? You think you're getting the medicine, but you're not getting the medicine, but you heal anyways. And I think what uh, VR, or one of the interesting, maybe even Pandora's sort of boxes with VR, is how much it's going to allow us to investigate and understand that relationship because we're literally making ourselves believe that a, a, an alternate rea- that we're in an alternate reality. And as you say, when the zombie's coming up behind your back and you hear the sound coming from you know back here, and as it gets closer, it amplifies. You know, you, your hair stands on end or your heart rate accelerates. It's not happening, but it's having that effect on your body. And that's just a very, very simple example. And so what, what will we be able to, you know, (laughs) learn about our body or even force our bodies to do by putting our minds in a situation where we believe it to be true. And so that's both scary and exciting because the possibilities in both in on both ends of the spectrum are, are, are vast. But I think, um, I think that's a, extremely interesting area that's going to be explored just how you know almost harnessing the power of belief to affect change in our in our physical bodies and i've studied that actually a little bit and it's already extremely fascinating but having that tool to uh you know enhance our insight and and experiment with it it's going to net some very squirrely results i think yeah it would definitely make it easier to um like you wouldn't have to have the just literal strength of mind or force of mind to uh, make yourself believe something that may or may not be true in order to affect your body. It's a tool. VR would be a tool to like, you just make that a lot easier, you know, cause you know, you can, you can trick your senses into uh, helping along uh, with that belief or like you know, um, the other I thing mean- that, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say you're you're basically you're making artificial dreams, right? When we've all woken up, you know, we were r- running away from a bad guy, fell off a cliff, had the feeling of falling, we're yeah. sweating, hearts racing. You know, it's, it's just something our mind conjured up, and it just flooded our body with the reaction as if it was real in some capacity. And I know yeah. this is kind of out of left field, but like I've always been fascinated by the wet dream, right? Because like <laughs> in normal circumstances. You, like you can't just look down and be like, all right, come on, like do yeah. your thing, you know, but in a dream, it's so powerful and so real yeah. that it hijacks your physiology and it allows that thing that normally you got to put a bit of work into to, to happen to, to happen, you know, absent anything. And so I, you know, odd example, I know, but just, it shows the, the extreme power of the mind to, uh, to influence physiology and, and, um, yeah, I, I think VR is going to just, it's, it's almost inconceivable that it wouldn't vastly expand uh, what we're able to do with, with that. All right, I want to put a peg right here because I want to come back to this spot, but a little side tangent. The corollary to that, kind of the opposite of that, that I've always been fascinated by is uh, lucid dreaming, right? So not just dreaming, controlling your physiology, but literally being able to, with your mind, um, acknowledge the dream state and then fight the urge once you have that realization to wake up uh, and become conscious again 
and then start to control your dreams and affect them and, and guide them in a way that you you want to go. Um, and I, when I was in when I was in Peace Corps, I had some time to kind of to study this and practice it. And it's very like very simple thing you can do to get started if you're if you're curious about this. And it's absolutely possible. I, I had I've done this. I've been able to like get to the point where I was able to control my dreams. I've kind of lost it because I'm out of practice, uh, but it t- takes some space and time to, to dedicate to it, but very simple things like you can just pinch yourself or like look at a, look at a watch or something. Uh, if you're in a dream state, the watch might be like, you know, moving in a, at a weird time or not at a constant pace, you know, the hands will move at a different time. Um, flip a light switch on and off, you know, in your dream it often won't, nothing will happen or something. Um, and when you wake up immediately, write in your journal, you know, just write down your dreams, what happened, like before you do anything else, try not to think about anything else, just write down what dreams you had. That'll help with the recall. And then you get to the point where you realize you're dreaming, right? And then it's, it's hard not to just like wake up uh, right away because it's so exciting, you know? Um, and then once you can resist that and you can stay and you kind of control your, yourself with that, that excitement, then you can start, you know, guiding your dreams and it's fucking magical um i yeah i was in a long-term or long-distance relationship and i know you are too john so you can maybe identify with this a little bit but i i was with my wife uh in a long a long-distance relationship and i first time i did this i was like all right you're doing it you're in control what are you going to do so i was like in this house uh some random dream house and I was like, a car is going to pull up outside and Alicia's going to get out and you're going to hang out, you know, um, invite her into the house and whatever, have a date and have a date night in, in, in house, in our house. And it happened. Like I opened the door, car pulled up, Alicia got out. It was fucking crazy. And at that point I just, I woke up and this is the first time I really controlled something. I, I woke up just crying because I was just all the emotions, all the feelings, uh, it was, it was absolutely, um, I don't know. It was a transformational experience. Um, have you guys ever played with lucid dreaming or thought about it, read about it? You guys would be so into it. It seems like something you guys would dig. I'm Brandon, you want to go ahead? Oh, I I've got no experience with it. I understand it. An intellectual level sounds great. Um, I don't have a strong relationship to my dreams actually. Yeah, yeah. I don't either. I remember buying. Uh, like in the scholastic book orders, like when you're 10, you know, remember when, I don't know if you guys had those, but you know, you, they come to school, you fill out yeah, all yeah. Books. one of them was on lucid dreaming. And I remember reading it at the <laughs> time and it sounded super cool. I could never really get a handle on it, but I did remember uh, for, for like a two week period that whatever I thought about at four o'clock, like is what I would dream about. And of course, like I, I tried to hijack that. So I would always just like stare and think about the hottest girl in the class at four <laughs> o'clock and hope that my dream was seated with that. But uh, to, to bring it back to Bitcoin for one second, while we're being super cosmic and weird and off topic, but, um, <laughs> you know, I think back just one of the vulnerabilities I think that we'll see with VR is just kind of like social media, right? A person on the scene, oh, this is so cool. We can share our lives with each other. Boom. And it's, it's become this thing that we now think we've got to be much more careful with for privacy reasons for you know mental mental health uh, issues especially for you know uh, you know younger people that are still developing and you know it's 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 we're seeing that it's a two-sided coin and i think vr is is orders of magnitude more immersive and powerful than that and the effect that it's going to have our psychology will be the same 
And so I think, you know, at first it's novel, it's cool. Oh my God, I'm in this immersive thing. I'm Luke Skywalker and this is insane. Uh, <laughs> and then it'll get to a point where we, we kind of realize the power of it and how it, how it does impact our, our minds and our bodies. And I think, and this is like, I, I have no basis on this, but Bitcoin being that kind of um, layer of trust in the digital realm, uh, I think there probably will be a synergy there at some point because if like somebody hacking in or hijacking, you know, your alternate reality, I think will become a very serious concern uh, yeah. because of the things that they could make you think and feel if they were capable of doing that. And I think we will need, we will want, if we're going to actually erect an alternate reality or realities or, or, or around us, we're going to want to make sure that it is, you know, very bulletproof and not susceptible to being hijacked because of the severity of the consequences. And I just intuitively feel like Bitcoin uh, is going to be involved in that, in that process somehow and maybe tethering it to some form of security or, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're definitely right that VR is just a more advanced form of media. And so as media has become more advanced as a tool, um, it's fantastic in, if it's used well, but it also has the power to subvert us. Uh, you could say we're all just dopamine addicts um, collecting little meme nuggets from the internet machine. And that's sort of like the foundation of society. And if we move to VR, what are the advanced form of the most sophisticated form of control leveraged through that? Um, I think you're spot on. There's definitely a big risk there. And before we get off on the VR thing, I had one more very strange tangent to go down. Nice. And if it's, that time, it's that time of the discussion. Go, <laughs> let's go. It's, so, all it's all tangents from here on out. All the way down. It's tangents all the way down. <laughs> um, this one actually relates back to evolution, evolutionary biology, which is sort of the overarching theme. And that is, uh, this is an idea that I stole from Jaron Lanier who's a fascinating futurist. He's got the largest uh, physical instrument collection on the planet. He, you know, he was hanging out with Timothy Leary. He, um, yeah, he, he's just a fascinating guy. And what's, the, this what's the name again, Brandon? Uh, Jaron, Jaron Lanier. Okay. You can look up a book like Who Owns the Future. He's, he's, he's great on podcasts. He's fascinating. But anyways, he has this concept about um, the, he's one of the pioneers of VR also. Um, he, he has this idea of a tail. So he created uh, some college, I don't remember which, they did a study where they created a VR simulation where uh, the person in the game has a tail. And what's fascinating about that is um, anyone who plays the game, they pick it up right away. It's, it's, they know how to whip the tail, they know how to hit the ball with the tail, they know how to attack with the tail. And, and so it begs the question, like, why are humans pre-programmed to use a tail? Like, we haven't had a tail for a very long time, and yet it's somehow embedded into our body uh, or the wisdom in, in our, our, our meat suit. And, yeah, like somehow <laughs> VR uh, unlocks these latent abilities that we didn't know we had. And so it begs the question, like, what, what other stuff is stored in us? If we accept that premise is true, what other stuff is stored in us, which we can unlock through these alternate reality simulations that sort of access a deeper or a, a dark corner of our, our human, humanness? Yeah, that's fascinating, man. It's a whole new frontier. And of course, all of this begs the question, 
about the simulation theory. Have you guys thought much about that? Or entertain entertain that notion or gone down that rabbit hole at all? I've just skimmed the surface. Um, Me too. For I, the most part. I think it makes sense. Like I, I get the argument mathematically. Um, if we're going to create a simulation indistinguishable from reality, then how could we not be in it now? I think that's mm -hmm. actually quite compelling. Yeah. Um, yeah. No strong it, opinions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I've only, I've only skimmed the surface too. Uh, but yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's like, if we can make, if we're able to make simulations uh, of this reality, then, you know, it would, it would beg the question, are we in one now? Um, and like you said, mathematically, chances would be yes, if in a world where simulations are possible, you know? I think it's one of those unanswerable questions that are just extra juicy to, for that reason, because they can't really be answered. And, and both, both approaches make sense. Like, yes, mathematically, yes, or, or, or no. I think that maybe the more interesting question is, uh, like, what is base reality anyways, you know, rather than are we like the base biological and we will build a simulation in a thousand years or we are the simulation that people more advanced than us built. But I don't know, like it's never, I've heard Elon talk about it and that kind of stuff. And because it's unknowable, I wasn't super intrigued, but I think, you know, um, questions around what this one is, is all about is certainly, they're always interesting. You can't, I remember <laughs> the funny story, but you know, we all, when we're growing up, we probably look up at the stars on a nice starry night, you know, without the, out in a rural environment or something. And if, you know, I think a lot of us curious minds, at least for myself, I'd, I'd just be in awe, right? I'd lie down on the stars and just think like, what's out there? How big? There's this, there's that. There's no end to it. Like, is there a brick wall at the end of space? Like, it's just forever. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I remember when I kind of started thinking about like, wait a second, things can be infinitely small too. So like, how do we know where we are on the the range or spectrum of size? And so like, Yes, it's infinitely large from there, but it's, you know, we're a nucleus is a, is a, an atom is a universe, you know, sort of thing, because we don't know what base level is like we can, the furthest down we can look there, you know, we see maybe frequencies or our measurements only go so far. But it, again, is there a point where it just stops? It's like, you've reached the end of reality on the, <laughs> on the small side. Well, no, it's like, you know, it, it uh, presumably it just keeps going. It just ch continues to change in its in its nature, and uh, you know, no point there. I just it's fun to think about, and you know, uh, yeah, let your mind wander. I love that thought because if like we only can zoom out or zoom in as far as our physical senses are capable, and then we amplify that with tools, right? And so if we look at various points throughout history. We didn't know that there was germs, right? We didn't know that there was microscopic things that could then influence us. We thought it was magic or whatever. And so now that we have these tools, every time we come up with a new tool, we think, oh, this is it. We know the upper bound and the lower bound. And then 50 <laughs> years later, we shatter that orders of magnitude deeper. And so what I think is an interesting question is, we always like to think of ourselves as the center, like there's yep. equal parts bigger and equal parts smaller than us. We're just this nice, happy medium. Yep. But really, we could be like actually really small. Like if we think about how big the universe is, we're so incredibly insignificant. So maybe there's like 
you know, giant things that we, we don't even observe, like a solar system in and of itself could be considered an organism. Or, I don't know, just as an example. But yeah, we, don't, we can't orient ourselves. We have no clue. Oh, man. I was just like, it's like our brains were on this exact same wavelength there. I'm just like, yes, yes. I was about to say that. I was about to, you know, at the exact moment I was thinking, I'm like, I'm going to say this next. You brought it up. And it's like, because um, I was thinking the whole time John was talking, it's like, yeah, we're, we're sort of this happy medium, right? We, that's, how we, that's how we perceive ourselves. You know, and there's just all this tiny shit and there's all this really big shit. And we're kind of right here in the middle. Um, and I do love the idea of, of the galactic organism. You know, I mean, there's billions of galaxies out there and they're interacting in ways like, uh, like trees and mycelium and stuff in a forest, you know, um, trading resources and energy and competing for that energy. And it's just, you know, fighting it's almost as if entropy. It's, <laughs> it's equally likely there's universes of intelligent life within each of us. Just yeah. based on that assumption that, you know, size is in scale is infinite in both directions. Then why would we only assume that such things exist on the scale larger than us and not that smaller than us? <laughs> Let alone our entire observable universe could be the equivalent of an atom in a grander drama. That's what I'm saying. Right? Yeah. Right? We have no clue. <laughs> you know what I've been, I've been dying to do? Obvi- you know, no, nobody's going to be surprised about this from me. But when this quarantine ends and the next time we're all at a conference or something, like I don't, you know, I don't, you know, consume much alcohol or weed or, or stuff anymore. And psychedelics is a kind of very kind of ritualistic uh, thing for me. But I'd love to just like have a, a session, like maybe Brandon, like you were talking about, like around the poker table or in some natural environment. And we just allow ourselves to get like un like recklessly cosmic about all this stuff and just see what kind of like ridiculous thoughts stem up because it's fun and you never know what comes out of those kind of sessions i mean we're kind of doing it right now um as best as best we can through this you know zoom magic zoom window thing um but yeah i you know i love the idea of uh you know consciousness springing from uh like basically kind of like black holes or some kind of like a subatomic, what what am I looking for? Like quantum action, you know, like some kind of quantum physics. There's like some kind of spooky thing there. Um, And, you know, I I am absolutely not a scientist on this front and I am just like, you know, applying some poetry to it because it sounds cool to me, but I have heard and read a few things about this idea of like some kind of quantum entanglement, uh, quantum action happening in our brains or somewhere like that that's basically you know allows consciousness to come to fruition um it's crazy idea it's super out there i need to dig into it more but i you know it's it's like it's it's on the extreme of science but i feel like those kind of ideas uh sort of filter into the center over over decades um yeah coming at it from a neuroscience perspective I don't think the average person understands how little we know about consciousness. We think, oh, the scientists, they figured out, you know, your, your brain hurts, take some pill. Uh, but the reality is we have no clue. We don't know if consciousness arises out of the physical arrangement of the brain, like have brain get consciousness, or if the consciousness comes 
um, some other way or it's like a, a mediation between physical and not is it a soul like it's either like a soul it's completely intangible consciousness or it emerges from the physical structure or it's a mediation of the two but the reality is we don't know and I, I find that to be a humbling fact that a single human brain has more is more complex than all technology in the history of humanity combined right and so it, it really is humbling. Like maybe we can't know. And even though we strive and we try, but we're just monkeys with pretty clothes on. We think we're <laughs> shit. There is, there is this thing. It's called the quantum theory of consciousness. And I, I've uh, only skimmed the surface of it, but damn, it's, I've got to dive down this rabbit hole. I just, I hadn't thought about it in a couple of years. I think I've been uh, completely overtaken by Bitcoin. I'm going to dive back into this one. This is a, this is mind blowing shit. <laughs> well, I mean, it does, you know, Bitcoin proliferating and becoming dominant money, you know, speaking of areas that will, it will improve. I mean, I'm sure you're both familiar with, you know, how academia is structured and how work is published and a lot of the, the fishy business that goes on there and the, the kind of perverse incentives and stuff like that. And again, you know, if we had a system with less perverse incentives and that, you know, with less obstruction, then think of the, you know, think of the things we will come to know about ourselves and the world as a result of the, the science that will be enabled. I mean, you know, Bitcoin fixes this. <laughs> <laughs> all right gents i think it's about that time we've been going for well over two hours i know it's super late where you are john it's time to get some sleep yeah uh, i always got energy for one of these you know that <laughs> oh yeah i know man i know me too um this has been great guys uh, should we i mean should we keep going i don't know i don't i don't want to like stop us prematurely but uh this felt like a good time to check in anyway i think i mean i'm more con i'm more interested to hear if brandon had anything you know bringing it back to uh the article if there was anything that uh, you wanted to cover that that we didn't touch on because we obviously went on some, <laughs> some lengthy tangents there <laughs> i mean it almost feels too abrupt to bring it down to like super tangible bitcoin stuff um, yeah. But one thing that I think would be interesting to talk about would be how proof of work um, leads to energy independence, like a more resilient uh, human organizational structure, like bringing energy local. And I kind of walk through that. And I, I think kind of the idea is that uh, Bitcoin mining, if it continues to gain uh, dominance, it will become a matter of national security. Right, whether this is uh, North Korea mining, Iran, Venezuela mining, now to the future where maybe the U.S. is saying I should probably uh, protect my monetary dominance, or a citadel saying, "Hey, we want to have influence over the network," or whatever. And so, if we extrapolate that out, it's clear to me that it will be a national security issue all over the world. And so, what that does is it creates a lot of demand locally. So, any country that produces energy in-house in their borders will have a tremendous advantage. In countries that don't have local energy production, maybe they'll start a war to get some, maybe they'll like sort of have a banana republic state next door, or maybe they'll innovate and create a way to produce energy locally. Um, but I don't know what's gonna play out, but I think the incentives are really interesting 
where it leads every nation state to say, hey, we better have some energy going to Bitcoin. And if there's a world where energy is produced more locally, I think mm -hmm. um, barring Bitcoin success, that's actually a huge win for society, right? Instead of shipping energy long distance, sort of like, yeah, more robust localized version, which maps well to the sovereign individual. Uh, but yeah, I think those steps are fascinating to me at least. Yeah. I think that, go ahead, John. No, you, you, you go. Okay. I was just going to say, I think that that's going to be, I mean, that's the way I see this all playing out, right? Is this sort of uh, de-evolution of this central state, this central authority and organizing society from the top down, a return to the idea that, you know, this country that America was founded upon, which is sort of this uh, weaker central federal government and, you know, local governance in the forms of states, municipalities, counties, et cetera. Um, I see that dissolving back into a more decentralized system. And I think it's going to center around these, uh, you know, centers of energy production. Right. And I think what will develop around those is uh, like small sort of, I don't know, you can call them uh, city states or um, I don't know, provinces, whatever, just some kind of like in, you know, sovereign, self-sovereign, uh, municipality like you know self-governing entity uh and you can enter in and out of that in as a relationship with bitcoin right so like you can as you enter into that particular uh district you can like put x amount of bitcoin on the blockchain uh commit it in a multi-sig address to like uh in conjunction with whatever governance you know body is is in that district and then you live there you know that's sort of your buy-in that's your skin in the game into that into that place and you're basically saying, I agree to abide by the you know, published laws of this district as long as I'm here and behave by the, these rules. Then when you're ready to exit that district and move on to some, somewhere else, you just take that Bitcoin, you, you go to the next place, you kind of buy into that next district, and you get to move around uh, and, and sort of shop around uh, for the type of political environment you want to be in, right? The way, the, govern, the type of society you want to be in. I think at the center of each of those is going to be, you know, this whatever mode of energy production is you know best suited to that particular area and it's going to kind of build out around that that's going to be kind of the mining locus the energy locus and then you'll have these districts of political experimentation that you kind of duck in and duck out of as you wish i think it'd be a beautiful totally i mean government governance is a tricky problem you know throughout human history right it's all it always has been and it it desperately needs competition mm -hmm. you know if we could if we could have an environment where yeah, go governance structures were competing for your capital, for your plug-in, whatever. Um, man, I mean, staggering to think, you know, what what might emerge from that. And I think, you know, I, I think that's awesome. And I think something like that will ultimately emerge, whatever the timeline it might be. Um, but I also think the more, I guess, the more independent and free people become, the more pressure it puts on those governance systems to compete really well, you know, because I, you know, technology is always a double-edged uh, sword, but, you know, we just seem to be inching closer and closer to at least the tools being available if they're not affordable for everybody or available to everybody all at the same time um, for independence and freedom. I mean, that's, we are, you know, I often obviously, check my you know wonder why i'm motivated and excited by this kind of stuff and 
intellectual curiosity and uh, interaction with certain people. Like there's many facets to it, of course, but it's all about freedom, right? The freedom to be and express who you are uh, with the people you want to, you know, in, on this fucking planet that, that we're on. And, you know, Brandon, you referenced kind of the ranch in, in a rural area. And I know lots among us, uh, you know, in the Bitcoin world, feel the same way and like i envision this thing in the future where you've got land you've got your own energy source you've got your own food source you've got your own medicine source you maybe you got a little you know room in your you got a little med bay in your garage and you're growing different forms of mushrooms and marijuana and this and that for concocting you know a variety of of remedies or therapies and stuff like that that actually work not just like you know woo woo but scientifically backed stuff um your defense, you print your own, you know, weaponry, if that's your thing. Like I just, all of these tools and technologies are allowing us to decrease or diminish and in certain cases, eliminate our dependence on other people and structures. And that's great because it's that dependence that makes us beholden to those people and structures. And that is what causes us and forces us to relinquish our freedom in exchange for what that dependence provides. And so if we can get to a point where we have those things and we're free thinking and feeling and expressing individuals all over the world, then one, I mean, it's going to be a way better place. And two, we'll be able to make those decisions. Like maybe I do want to live in Brady's town because he is just crushing it with the services he's providing and the people he's bringing together and the block party every weekend and whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> you know, and that's so, going to yeah. be lit. <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> and so sure that like a free thing in person can make that, that determination, that calculation and think, yeah, summer home in Brady's town. And you know, my, my cabin, uh, my, my ultra modern cabin in the woods for the rest of the time, you know, it, I, it all roads. I, I'll probably sound naive here, but, Roads toward freedom are consistently opening up, and uh, I know, I, I know that on the there's always kind of a balance. Maybe this is just the yin and yang of of reality, and that it's you know you're always kind of walking along the precipice as both forces advance simultaneously. But um, I'm just it's super exciting to be alive during a time when real true freedom is at least something that is on the horizon and that seems accessible because I would, you know, I would say that, you know, it wasn't accessible. Like back in the day, if, you know, if you don't have your own source of energy, if you don't have your own source of food, well then you're not, you're not truly free. You've got to depend on somebody else for that. And then you're, you're beholden to them in some way or vulnerable to them in some way. And so if you can X, you know, kind of X out all those different vulnerabilities, just um, the, the place that you will be at, you know, physically, mentally, um, to act and express and engage with the world. I, I, like I, I yearn for the, the, the kind of power of that uh, sensation. Not, you know what I mean by power? Not power over anything else, but just the, the strength so of that. The, empo- the empowerment. Right, the empowerment of that sen- the yeah. sensation. And uh, you know, it's definitely something that I'm striving towards. Yeah, man. A sovereign individual. That's what yeah, I've been thinking. Well, there you go. Could have just said that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I want to hear from you, Brandon, about this idea because I've been thinking about. I love the idea of the sovereign individual. I've been thinking about that a lot. But then, what does a society of sovereign individuals look like? Right? Like, how does that emerge? 
because obviously we're social creatures. We want to, you know, live in a system, a social system with each other. Um, that's the way that we're, you know, most uh, healthy and vibrant and, you know, brings out the best in us. Um, the, the one idea that I had, and I think I got, I got most of this from Max Hillebrand was that idea where you can buy in and out of certain different, you know, political experimentation, different districts. Um, you have the skin in the game. If you violate the rules of the district, you, your Bitcoin is taken or some amount of it is taken. Um, maybe, you know, if it's egregious, all of it's taken and you're, you're banned from that district. Um, that seems like a really interesting, very simple uh, system based on economic incentives uh, and still allowing for a sovereign individual. Yeah, definitely. So I'll just give a quick overview of the sort of the thesis there in case anyone hasn't read the book. Um, but it's based on the logic of violence. That's sort of the under, undercurrent of the whole book, or at least the most powerful idea from my perspective. And that is that at any given point in history, there are just based on the, the constellation of forces that are active at that one point, there is a particular logic to how violence can be used. And let me give an example. So the last 500 years, it's all been, it's been about the nation state with the largest army. So magnitude of your might, essentially. This goes back to like the Brits, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire. They just have a big Navy, so they're everywhere. America's got the Air Force or the aircraft carriers and the nukes. And so it's just big armies. And in the last 50 years or so, we're starting to see the logic shift towards defense. And so it's, it's more like individuals have an asymmetry. We, one individual is stronger as, as a defender um, as compared to a large entity attacking them. And let me try to give some examples here. So let's think of the world fracturing into city-states. And each city-state has 100 people or 100,000 people or whatever. Everyone uses Bitcoin. And in these city-states, we have uh, cryptography protecting our money, cryptography protecting our communication. We have anti-aircrafts. We have drones, etc. And so we have this little nation state in the middle of wherever. And why would anyone try to attack us? If they attack this small group, they don't get any of our Bitcoin. And they're going to have to do a lot of attacking compared to our technological advanced defenses. And so game theory would suggest that there's no point to attack them because there's nothing to gain. And so if we fracture into this thing of a bunch of city states, then, you know, all we need to see is the advance of these defensive technologies like cryptography, like 3D printing. Uh, we're going to be able to 3D print biological things like I can print a virus on a bad case or I can pr print my own medicine or I can custom print my own drugs based on the effect I want based on my own neurochemistry. That's all going to be in-house in these little city-states. So it's sort of like a back to the tribe, but it's actually defensible now because we have these defensive technologies. So I guess that's kind of how I see it. Um, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we'll just get swept up by the, the redcoats. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I harp on this a lot because I think it's so fundamental to, to the impact that Bitcoin will have. But the fact that it's a form of wealth and probably, in, you know, Andy Edstrom in, in his book, you know, he, he talks about the, the moneyness of things. And, we, and basically, it's what things in our, in our world are used as a store of value in addition to whatever else they're used for. So like, you know, an art piece of artwork that's worth $5 million, right? 
the own, a lot of owners will, will buy that. Yeah, it looks nice and it's a status symbol and whatever, but they're parking some money in there so that they, you know, maybe sell it later for a little bit of a gain or it maintains value. Everything has moneyness, right? And we live, and that's no wonder, right? Because we live in this, this fiat world where if the money isn't very good at all at keeping its value, then it's the value kind of has to seep out like a hermit finding a new shell in all these different places, right? It's got to, I, I, I got to use the stock market as a shell and art as a shell and gold as a shell and like revamped 60s car, classic cars. And like, there's so many things that are partially used uh, for a store of value today. And so when we get to a place where that reverts and things go, you know, a dominant money becomes the dominant store of value and sucks up the store of value for the moneyness of all those other things in society that have taken on that role because of how poor uh, the, the money that we use is today. Um, the fact that that honeypot, which will be presumably enormous if it does suck up all that, that, this, that moneyness, uh, is not accessible through force, or at least is, is a lot harder. I get pushback on this because someone says, you, you put a gun to your head and you say, give me your keys. But as you were saying, Brandon, like, yeah, but if they don't give them up and you kill them, you don't get them, right? So there's much less incentive to do so there than if there's a big vault full of gold and you could just nuke everybody and then go figure out how to get into the vault. So the fact that the dominant store value will be in a non-physical form that's extremely difficult to access is just going to change the incentive for uh, violence uh, the way that it's kind of been carried out throughout human history thus far across the board. And, uh, you know, I, I, that's part of the, the reason why people are enthusiastic about Bitcoin from a kind of a peace perspective. But just the implication that of that uh, will radically be another asset uh, aspect that radically transforms society in, in many ways. Definitely. And there's another force there, which is, if we, we have this defensive technology, which theoretically enables city-states to emerge defensively, um, then there's also the question of, okay, let's say we have uh, 10,000 city-states instead of two, 300 countries. Um, how do you determine how one city-state interacts with another city-state economically? Right? If, we, if we just forecasted the current game, we would say, okay, now we have 10,000 monies or some fraction of that. And we have a dollar standard or whatever. But what this, what this actually leads to is the fact that city-states don't need to trust each other because they'll coalesce on neutral money. And that neutral money has to be something like Bitcoin. Um, no one's going to do business with the other guy printing out shroot bucks if they can help it. And so if we foresee that, I think Bitcoin does facilitate. Um, it's the perfect collateral against your enemy. It's the perfect... Um, settlement layer against your enemy and that that's just a no-brainer yeah and i i think the the flip side um, of the kind of unconfiscatability of the primary you know source of wealth in a bitcoin world is also the relative value that it will have versus things in the outside physical world so not only will like the main honeypot be that the incentive will be dramatically reduced to try to go after it but everything in our exterior world will relative to the value of, of Bitcoin be less. So it's even less incentive to like jack somebody for their VCR or whatever the equivalent is uh, 
at that time, you know, because I, I just, I see our, our, uh, the world around us becoming utilitarian is not the right word. Cause it kind of brings in a, an idea of, you know, maybe socialism or, or just having what's necessary. But I think that the relative value will be so in favor of that, which is not, or very difficult to, to confiscate unconfiscatable or, unconfiscatable or very difficult to confiscate that the incentive to um to use violence to acquire wealth in the uh, exterior physical world will be dramatically diminished as well because it's just written on a relative basis it won't be that won't be that much does that make sense i don't know if i said that properly I think it makes sense if if we use the framing of bitcoin um enables a more deflationary world yeah yeah for sure physical things become cheaper over time and so the incentive to acquire physical things has much less allure um why would you steal the guy's vcr or something like that just the incentives just slightly go down over time yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll all be living in pods and eating bugs anyway so <laughs> <laughs> i mean technology is deflation obviously been deflationary for a long time and it's so deflationary uh that the you know prices of technology go down despite uh inflation that we've been <laughs> dealing with for a long time so you can see the consumer price index go parabolic after 1971 um but the prices of computers laptops phones etc cetera, etc cetera, uh continues to go down imagine if we had um you know sound money uh how quickly the uh prices of this these technologies depreciate and become accessible, uh, and that's I mean that's those are the ideas of uh, you know Peter Diamandis and and the the abundance crowd that we're heading into this um, this world where things are so easily so cheaply like the I guess the, the what how's it put the uh, you know the margins on on uh, oh it's uh, there's another book actually it's similar it's called Zero Marginal Cost Society I think so like the marginal cost of all these goods is approaching zero over time that's just encouraged by a sound money. So you combine like deflationary tech, you know, exponential tech with sound money and, you know, like it, it really levels the playing field, <laughs> you know, a lot. Yeah. Things become, you know, this argument comes up a lot. Like you can't use an inelastic deflationary currency, but I, I don't know. Like to me, it just like, like you both have just said, it just means that things will become cheaper over time and to your point brady like the things that have that are already resisting our inflation because of the trend of deflation they have inherent to the, their kind of nature their technology will be even more dramatic and yeah. you know why shouldn't some like all work done in the present is a result of work done in the past so you know the value of of capital like of money i think should increase because the money, you know, 10 years ago um, was what is what, <laughs> what the capital 10 years ago is what allowed the environment for you to contribute or create value in the now yep. is responsible for. And so I think I'm too tired to articulate that one too well, but. No, I get uh, you that like that should be priced in, right? Like all of that previous work that you're building upon should you know add to the value of the money and that that's the way it should be right uh, over time it shouldn't the money shouldn't decrease in value because it's 
society right. is more valuable ostensibly unless you have a debt-based society right a fiat right. debt-based society um then you know you, all you have the opposite right you're you're yeah, not you just valuing work done previously you're valuing uh work to be done in the future you're bringing forth that value uh, in the present rather than it's the exact opposite yeah yeah yeah, yeah. pulling demand forward yep. yeah man this was quite a quite a marathon guys good yeah, session it was fucking great yeah i mean let's i, I don't know I, I i keep trying to call this prematurely are you guys still still up for going i i just hear i'm just feeling i'm trying to sense the crowd here i feel john's like getting a little tired i don't know i'm good to go but uh, I'm getting I mean, tired. It, it, yeah, if if you got more, I, I I don't know. I don't think I have much more to control. I'm, I'm getting sloppy. <laughs> I'm getting sloppy now, but uh, I'm certainly down to listen to to, to you guys uh, rant if you want to. No, I think I think I've ranted enough for for tonight. This is uh like hour four of Bitcoin content production for me today. <laughs> so I think I'm living good. the dream, Brady. Living the dream. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Brandon, thanks, man. Um, any final thoughts, closing words, put a bow on all of this for us. Obviously not yeah. all of this, but like, you know, maybe on, on the piece that we at least talked about for half an hour. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to even think what's a responsible way to wrap this up. Um, the thing that comes to mind is that Bitcoiners are awesome and fascinating and the fact that we can have three hours on the phone here and probably spend like a quarter of it on bitcoin maybe maybe a little more um, is really interesting to me and we could keep on going and so for me to wrap up like i think just zoom out a little bit like we get myopic into bitcoin land but it does touch on so many themes that are applicable outside of just money and economics and so I would just encourage people to explore their tangential interest to Bitcoin as a way to enrich their Bitcoin influence uh, or their, their Bitcoin experience, I should say. And simultaneously, you will also draw new people into the fold. Um, I agree. Yeah. Keep Bitcoin and Bitcoiners. Love you guys. Love you guys. Love you, man. We're at that part of the night. Love you, man. Part of the night. <laughs> Love you guys too. Love you, Love man. You guys too. All you guys. <laughs> Cheers to that.